0: Hello, and thank you for joining us. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Blaxler Smith-Klein. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Our experts will discuss the diagnosis of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, therapeutic options, and managing exacerbations. The first episode of our six-part series focused on the diagnosis of patients with COPD, particularly using the GOLD recommendations and the COPD assessment test. In this episode, our experts will discuss dual therapy regimens for COPD, I'm your host, Candice Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. We are joined by Dr. Jill Ohar, Professor of Pulmonary, Critical Care, Allergy, and Immunologic Medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and by Dr. Melon Han, a Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Michigan. Dr. Ohar will begin our discussion.
1: Hello, and welcome to our discussion about dual bronchodilator regimens for COPD. I'm joined by Dr. Milan Han. Milan, welcome. Thank you, Joe. When talking about management of COPD, it's important to tailor our therapy to each individual patient. Fortunately, we have a lot of options, not only as single bronchodilators, but dual bronchodilator regimens, and also triple therapies. Today, we're gonna focus on dual bronchodilators. In addition to that, we also have an array of devices that are available for administering these various molecules. So some of the actual agents that we'll be talking about today would include salmeterol, ravofenicin, formoterol, glycopyrrolate, teotropium. Are there any other agents that, that you use routinely that you'd like to mention?
2: Uh, thanks, Jill. I think, as you've uh, pointed out, there are a variety of long-acting bronchodilators out there, including uh, beta agonists, which you've mentioned a few, as well as uh, muscarinic antagonists. Uh, I think you've uh, mentioned uh, the the majority of them. I think perhaps aclidinium comes to mind for uh, a drug that's available. Uh, not in a nebulized uh, form, but rather, rather in a powdered, uh, dry powdered formulation. But I think it'll be uh, interesting to talk about today both how we uh, select the right drug for patients, but also the right devices. I think respiratory uh, medicine is somewhat unique in that and that we really have to think about both when trying to decide on the best therapy for a particular patient.
1: Absolutely. Um, really, let's just get down to it. When do you use a single agent And when do you use a dual agent? When do you make that move to a dual agent? And furthermore, you've already delineated that there are two basic uh, categories of long-acting bronchodilators. There's the long-acting beta adrenergic and the long-acting muscarinic agents. So when do you decide which of those two do you start with? That's a really great question. So if we look at that gold guidance
2: document, I think we're really kind of honing in on what we'll call the GOLD-B patient. So uh, these are patients, initially, that's sort of the, the first step where you're having persistent symptoms, and that's where you really want to start thinking about bringing in either a, 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 sorry, a single or a dual bronchodilator. Now, GOLD currently recommends starting with potentially a single, either a long acting beta agonist or, or a muscarinic antagonist. But if you read kind of further into the document, Uh, I think the data probably is a little better for llamas over lavas, so the muscarinic antagonist. So when I'm uh, choosing a single agent, if I decide to go that route, I would say that's probably what I would typically do. But if you read further in the document, there's, I think, good data to suggest that the more symptomatic the patient is, the more benefit they're probably going to get from a dual bronchodilator than a, a single we know that uh, symptom uh, improvement as well as FEV1 improvement is a bit better for the duals than it is for the monotherapy. So I measure in clinic either something called the MMRC, which is a dyspnea score, or the COPD assessment test CAT, which, is, which looks at several aspects of uh, respiratory symptoms and quality of life. But if the patient is really high up on that scale, say a CAT score of 20 or more, um, then sometimes I actually will think about starting a patient sort of just off the bat uh, with a, uh, a dual bronchodilator. I think one of the other issues that comes into play, though, is a patient that may come into your office who is on a single agent. Uh, and I think at that point, if they are still complaining of a lot of shortness of breath uh, with a single agent, at that point, it again makes uh, sense to go ahead and step up to dual therapy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great summary. And I think you've highlighted several areas that are important for me to further um, add to. And that is number one, you know, you and I are both specialists, but 80% of COPD patients are actually managed by primary care practitioners. And so Clearly, by the time a patient comes to see a specialist, it's not unusual uh, for them to have a CAT score of greater than or equal to 20. I think furthermore, it's important even for for primary care and uh, specialists alike to be uh, ever mindful that that patients tend to downplay their symptoms um, and that a scoring system such as the CAT um, can really help ferret out uh, symptoms in a, in a better way than just saying, how are you feeling? Are you able to get around get get things done? Finally, um, I, I like how you brought up the idea that after that initial therapy, it's very important for, for us to go back into the, the gold management review cycle where you review those symptoms again. You compare that CAT score now versus the last visit. You ask about exacerbations, you assess the inhaler technique and other possible non-pharmacologic approaches, and then you adjust your medicine uh, to either escalate or, in some cases, actually de-escalate uh, not only the drugs, but also the devices. So I think um, that's absolutely uh, spot on where I am with therapy as well. I, I want to ask you a little bit, uh, because this starts to bridge into the concept of early COPD versus milder COPD, and I know we we tend to think of mild as mild, moderate, severe, and, and the gold grades based on FED1, but tell me, the difference, there's a, there's an ongoing discussion, so tell me what you perceive to be the difference between early COPD, mild COPD, and how that would impact your therapeutic decisions.
2: Yeah, I think those are all great questions and things that people like you and I are spending a lot of time thinking about these days. So the holy grail, really, for COPD therapy is probably to go on beyond symptoms and really think about disease progression. And we're still kind of struggling in the process of trying to understand how the therapies we have and and also neurotherapies that are coming on the market may modify the course of disease. But there's probably a big difference between somebody with really mild airflow obstruction who's 35 versus 80. The 35-year-old, if they've already got symptoms and some abnormality at 35, probably is a pretty high risk for progression. Whereas if you've got an 80-year-old that's made it all the way to 80 and has only got very mild disease and minimal symptoms, then uh, that patient is probably on the very protected end of the spectrum. And so I think we're really starting to think much more consciously about when we try to, for instance, enroll people in clinical trials or or uh, identify thresholds that we would be clinically concerned about, we need to think about that 35-year-old uh, very differently from uh, the 80-year-old. So I think this is certainly something that uh, at GOLD we're, we're wrestling with right now and to what extent it should kind of go into the recommendations. I think right now we're, we're going to need more information. But I do think it's interesting that uh, we've got, I think, at least one study now uh, of uh, teotropium that came out of China looking at milder, so milder not earlier, but at least milder. Mm-hmm. Uh, disease, as well as some secondary uh, analyses that came out of the UPLIFT study, which was also looking at teotropium, where there does appear to be slower rates of lung function uh, decline uh, when we look at just the patients with milder disease. So I think this does set us up for doing some future studies. And trying to better understand whether inhaled therapies might actually ultimately modify the course of the disease if introduced early. So I think right now it's still a bit of a question mark. It's actually kind of funny. I actually literally just yesterday was emailed out of the blue by uh, a gentleman in Las Vegas. who would just been uh, diagnosed with COPD and saw me on the web and contacted me directly. And that was his exact question. My symptoms are mild. My pulmonary function testing abnormality is still pretty pretty, uh, you know, mild. What's the evidence? Should I go on a bronchodilator now? So, so you know, he, he was sort of asking me out of the blue the same thing that we're talking about right now. See, this patient was in his, uh, he was actually in his mid-50s and a never smoker. So uh, mm-hmm. that's something else that I think is somewhat interesting. You and I chat about this a lot, but we always think about uh, patients with COPD as being smokers, but the data suggests roughly one quarter are not, and so I think that's why this gentleman in particular had not uh, gotten onto the radar screens yet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That tends to be one of those kinds of things that is a tip-off. I need to look for COPD, that, uh, or a past history of cigarette smoking. You're absolutely right. Um, I find that uh, in in our area, exposure to biomass fuels are quite common in people's background. Uh, Long-standing remodeled asthma And then there's always the one that I pull out of my uh, vest pocket for uh, the residents to be thrilled with, which is uh, the premature low birth weight baby who has had failure of appropriate postnatal and actually prenatal alveolarization. And therefore, uh, even at their adult lung growth, um, their lung size is smaller. Therefore, they have lower lung function. Uh, When they start that age-related decline of FEV1 at 30, which we all do because we lose that elasticity and we lose just a little bit of lung function every year as a normal part of aging. And I think that that kind of tags back into our discussion of earlier versus milder and what does earlier mean. Um, so you're saying then people with milder, or is it earlier? Uh, COPD, or is it both that you would start uh, on a llama? And is there, is, would you start on a llama uh, and not a lava because there isn't data on a lava yet? Uh, so help me understand that choice. To be frank, there's not
2: tons of head to head data with lava versus llama. There is some. Um, and, I, and I think, in general, um, that data for the llamas is a little better. But in particular, I think for exacerbation reduction, which we haven't really gotten into, there is data that both a single bronchodilator as well as dual bronchodilators can help to reduce uh, exacerbations. But I think we know that CUPD is a progressive disease. And so often when patients present with symptoms, the next thing they're going to, to present with is uh, exacerbations. And if you look even at the Gold D group. For uh, the gold uh, recommendations, and that's the group with high symptoms and high risk for exacerbation. LAMA is still an option uh, as monotherapy, as well as dual bronchodilator therapy uh, and uh, inhaled steroid uh, lava therapy. Those are all options. But um, it's important to note that we know that that both llamas, as well as lava llamas, both have efficacy for exacerbations. And so I think for me, uh, is generally uh, sort of one of the, the tipping points. Uh, for choosing uh, a llama over uh, a LABA monotherapy. Having said that, there are going to be patients where um, there's going to be patient preference issues. Occasionally, I've had uh, gentlemen you know, with enlarged prostates who simply can't tolerate a llama. They have too much urinary retention. And so in that case, there may be um, patients where starting off with a LABA is the better choice.
1: Yeah, I think glaucoma might, uh, people with severe glaucoma might fall into that category as well. Um, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on uh, the concept of uh, dynamic hyperinflation. I, I think uh, you brought out very astutely the concept that both llamas and lavas reduce exacerbations and and when used in combination there there seems to be a greater reduction in uh, exacerbation frequency reduction than than those agents alone. Um, but I think when you talk about early disease i I think the concept of dynamic hyperinflation is so very, very important uh, because I believe that that is the first thing that limits people's exercise capabilities and actually fosters the development of those common comorbidities, such as obesity, diabetes, the metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and all of those. Because if you can't breathe when you exercise, because you have premature airway closure, uh, and and that combined with a prolonged expiratory phase. So you actually, your residual volume goes up, 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 up as you exercise, limiting your ability to exercise, you take to the couch. So do you think about that often? Is that one of the things in your earlier or milder patient's that you really push hard on to get a good exercise tolerance history and does that affect your therapeutic decisions.
2: Yeah, I think those are really great um, points, uh, Jill. We talked about this, I think, a lot in the pulmonary community thinking about, well, we can give the patients these medications, but it's, but the ultimate goal is, is, is to allow them to uh, have better functional capacity. So that's why I know you in particular, Jill, as, as well as myself are big proponents of pulmonary rehabilitation, which I think is another key companion uh, non-pharmacologic therapy that, that I like to use in addition to the pharmacologic therapy so that you get sort of that synergistic benefit. Do you have the, the medication helping for, to reduce that dynamic hyperinflation that occurs during exercise, uh, allowing them to to do more? I always point out to my patients, is use it or lose it. I actually was uh, stuck on bed rest for about three months prior uh, to delivering my son and when I got out of the hospital I could barely walk across the, the street without getting short of breath <laughs> because I hadn't done anything uh in, in three months. So I point out to my patients that, you know, we've got to maximize lung function and exercise capacity that they do have. And they need to be at kind of a quote peak fitness uh, level for, for what they for the physiology that they do have. So that's uh, I think a great point, Jill, that I think uh, pulmonary rehab is a great companion therapy uh, for patients who are on bronchodilators.
1: Um, we touched on the side effects of the llamas, but we really didn't say much about the LABAs. the idea that they certainly can provoke arrhythmias. They seem to be fairly beta-specific, but, but some people uh, tend to have an enhanced uh, sensitivity to that. And I think that we see that primarily when patients um, aren't using their devices uh, correctly. Um, clearly, when meter dose inhalers, which are meant to be inhaled slowly and deliberately, are inhaled rapidly and partially, that causes turbulence and flow and, and the The beta-adrenergic ends up in the mouth, the back of the throat, and then they get a systemic dose. The same thing is true with dry powders, except it's the inverse. The dry powders are made to be inhaled hard and fast. And when a patient inhales it slowly and deliberately, again, the drug ends up in the back of the throat and the mouth, and they get a, a, a systemic swallowed dose. Uh, which can lead to the jitters or, or can lead to arrhythmias. Um, is, has that been your experience as well? And, and what are your insights with regard to that? You no, know, it's funny, Jill. I would say before
2: the COVID pandemic, uh, the general population probably had not thought about anything about inhaled particles and where they go. And now you can't turn on the news without hearing about droplets and aerosols and particle size. <laughs> and And so... Um, I think it's a great opportunity to kind of further educate people on um, what happens when you breathe stuff into your lungs. And so, you know, the heavier um, the particle, they tend to um, deposit more proximally in the airway. And the lighter the particle, they tend to to go further out. And so, because the powders and the aerosols are formulated differently with different particle sizes, they're meant to be used in a very specific way. If you don't inhale them sort of at the correct rate and in the correct way, they may end up in the wrong part of the lung because the formulations really are different. So this is, I think, at least for me, represented a big challenge. It was already challenging uh, trying to make sure patients understood how to use their medications properly before uh, they left the office. But now with the pandemic and virtual visits, uh, I think it's getting you know even more complicated. Fortunately. We've got a lot of good online resources. The COPD Foundation app, for instance, uh, links to some great uh, videos, and that's free for patients to use. So, uh, but it is really important, you know, when patients are are failing, um, you know, Gold really recommends that we not just think about are they failing the drug. We need to think about are they failing the device, and uh, and so that's something that uh, at least (laughs) typically pre-pandemic, anyway. I would you know, uh, have uh, patients demonstrate how they're using it. We uh, might check them with a the device. I know you're familiar with called an in-check dial to see what flow rates are generating and to make sure that those flow rates are appropriate for the device that's been given and see whether the patient can be trained to use it properly or not. So I think that's a great point that we always need to think about, uh, You know, not only is the drug right for the patient, but is the device right for the patient? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So. I wanna just kind of circle back and summarize, I think it's critical that we think about um, not only single agents, a single llama or a single LABA, but in many cases, dual therapy is better than a single agent, um, and that it's important to start these therapies early uh, to to help patients with exercise tolerance. And then as you've already mentioned, to couple that uh, with pulmonary rehab uh, for our patients to get the the best out of their treatment program that they can. So thanks a lot for joining me. And uh, I look forward to meeting you again in another podcast. Thanks so much, Jill. Thanks everyone for joining
0: us. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to go to morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD2 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. And be sure to join us for the next episode in this series at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD3, where doctors O'Hara and Han will continue their discussion of therapeutics, particularly the role of triple therapy in the treatment and management of COPD. You can also find all six episodes in this series at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD.